day, but trusting that this was just a beginning for our own lives living in the nearness of God because the nearness of God, and as Peter shared his experience in England, uh, and it's it's my great concern that we will live in a generation that watches America follow the pathway of England into a post-Christian nation. Uh, And as much as I'd like to say the the church sets the tone for the world, it certainly seems that the world has set the tone for the church in a lot of ways, and we need to be wise about that. And so what happens in the world eventually finds its way into the church. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you just know that's true. You just watch what happens around us The ideas, the way of life, the pace, the appetites for things. And the next thing you know, the church begins to look and feel like that as well. And so I think the nearness of God is the only thing, the reality of God, the receiving, the living exchange between us and God is the only thing that rescues us from a future like that. That you and I can look, and I hope you're sitting here this morning, and you can look in your life this week, and you can say, God's been real to me this week. You may be a God-loving individual, but if you lived this one week, I'm going to warn you, if you lived one week without an awareness of the nearness of God, you are in danger. That's, that's the starting place of everybody and every church and every culture that ever drifted into no man's land spiritually. It just began with a week where God was far from me. And you'll be amazed at how that week can turn into two weeks, into two months, etc. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I don't know that I experienced the nearness of God this week. I don't know that I communed with him that way. I don't know that I opened my heart to receive from God that way. Well, then, then sober up this morning. Stop. Whatever it is that you're doing, it's not that important as being near to the God who created you. Let me visit a couple of news headlines with you. These captured my attention, relevant to what we're talking about. Reading the AP Newswire earlier this week. I want to make you allergic to what I'm going to read in here. So if you're not allergic to this and it sounds like, why are you reading this? Well, then you need to listen very carefully because when you read stuff like this in the world, you need to be able to hear, there's something wrong with that. So if you don't hear there's something wrong with this, And you're wondering, why is Keith picking on this? You need to be concerned about your ability to discern your culture. All right, so listen carefully. AP News, first one, titled, Pope to New Cardinals, Practice Compassion, Be Open to All. Pope Francis on Sunday exhorted 20 new cardinals to reach out to all those who have been shunned physically or spiritually by the church or society. Francis told them that their mission must be one of welcoming and of rolling up our sleeves and not standing by and watching passively the suffering of the world. Francis told the cardinals, the way of the church is not to condemn anyone for eternity. He urged them to go out in search of those who are distant, those on the outskirts. Instructed them to, quote, see the Lord in every excluded person, even in those who have lost their faith or turned away from the practice of their faith. Now, when I read the next one, you're going to be a little bit more clued as to what, what, what's wrong with that. Just, just encouraging people to reach out and care for pe- people. What's, what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's got some little glitchy little issues in it. 
And I'm not sure what, what Bible I'd be reading to come up with the idea that the, the way of the church is not to condemn anyone. Uh, I, I can appreciate part of that. But the church makes this announcement to the world, not that we condemn you, but that you stand condemned. So I need to be kind of really careful that I don't create a religious idea that says, if I want to be religious the right way, I put all that aside and I simply care for people in their hurt. Now, can I say this about the church? The church needs to care for people in their hurt a whole lot better than it does. Now, if that's what he's trying to say, I'm with you. But he says it in a way that becomes problematic. Now, listen to this next thought. Same AP Newswire, same day, I believe. When Bart Campolo, some of you have been around Christianity or recognize his last name, you'll see why. When Bart Campolo broke with the church almost five years ago, he immediately began to feel something missing. It wasn't so much that the pastor's son no longer believed in God. He'd never been that much of a believer anyway. What he missed, Campolo said, was what the church had represented to him. A place where like-minded people could gather for fellowship, to pursue moral justice, to help one another, and to try to live good lives. Now, if I just stopped right there and said, is that... Now, his term fellowship, he's misusing, because that's a God word, and he's misusing it. So I'm going to steal that word out of his vocabulary, because he doesn't know what it really means. But if I, if I pull that word out and I say the rest of that, does, does that sound like a church to you? Because if it does, it sounds, well, yeah, let's pursue moral justice. Yeah, okay, help one another. Okay, try to live good lives. Okay. And you don't have to be a church to do any of that. And you're going to see in just a second, that's exactly the problem in this article. So the one-time United Methodist youth, youth minister who worked for decades with the poor in the inner city of neighborhoods in Philadelphia and Cincinnati figured he'd try to keep doing that by presiding over what he cheerfully calls a church for people who don't believe in God. Campolo, 51, joined a growing movement of college humanist chaplains arriving at the University of Southern California last September. I didn't pull the statistics into this, but they're a little alarming. Because this is becoming, this is catching ground, big time. How do you... Live a good life. If this life is the only one you have, how do you make the most of it? Are some of what he calls the big questions that he and his flock of atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers are pondering. A youth minister for 30 years, the younger Campolo, and his father is Tony Campolo. How many of you guys know who Tony Campolo is? You've been around Christianity for a little while. Do you guys remember Tony Campolo's message? Tony Campolo's message was more on social justice than it was on the person and work of Christ. If you got around Tony Campolo, he was, mobile, he was a mobilizer. I'd never read Tony Campolo without walking away feeling guilty that I'm, I'm really not reaching out to people sufficiently. That's not a bad message, but they lost something in the message here. I'm not sure Tony really lost it. His son seems to have lost it. Youth minister for 30 years, the younger Campolo grew up in the church and said he remains close to members of that community, including his Baptist minister father. He has no interest in arguing the existence of God with them, Campolo said, adding, belief wasn't what drew him into the church in the first place. 
I wanted to be around people who pursued kindness, goodness, love, and social justice. And that seemed to be the only game in town, the gregarious pastor said during a recent interview from his office at USC. For me, the attraction was being part of a community that was reaching out to people who were hurting. That sounds somewhat right, though, doesn't it? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Isn't that important? Isn't that what the church is supposed to be doing in the earth today? All right, well, here's the alarming element of this, because this second article features what the first article hints at. The idea that this is what is primary, this is the main focal point of the church's existence, the alleviation of human suffering. That we are here. You want to really be the church? And I've heard pastors say this. Sit in a gathering like this and act like whatever you're doing in here, that don't really count. You want to really be the church? Well, get out there and be the church. That sounds, that almost sounds right. Like, should I applaud right now? He's, where's he going with this? Here's the two great commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Mr. Campolo's church, do you notice that one of these is missing? Does that trouble you? Would it, would it trouble you if, if I could parade one person after another from the community in this world that has been affected by something besides the love of God? Because churches can rah-rah over some amazing stuff. If I could tell you a story about this young woman who was a prostitute who got rescued from that lifestyle, who's no longer that, and this group of people are now caring for them, we could all celebrate that. And we all should if the first command gets restored into people's lives. So you're not just here to figure out ways to do good to other human beings. We are here because a creator made us for himself. And the primary thing you need to be asking yourself is not whether you helped somebody this week, although if there's reality in your Christian life, you probably did, I hope. But your real question is, are you here this morning loving God with everything you are? You just had a minute to love God with your finances. Did you? You had a moment in this portion of the service to love God from a heart that sings because you are enamored with God and you have studied God and God takes your breath away and a song about forgiveness leaves you in tears and you are deeply affected and amazed because you know this great God has stooped into your world and loves you intimately as a perfect father and you are undone by that. Or did you sit in mouth words and not even sing? Listen, can I just tell you? What you do in here matters. It's not just what you do out there that matters. Now, I love saying that to this church because you do a lot of stuff out there. The fact that we finance and put people on Tulane's campus and reach out into young people's lives. And Evan's not just caring for your kids, but he's reaching into a school here in the, in the Metairie area. We, we want to go out after people's lives. But that's not what keeps us on track. Loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is what's primary. Do you passionately have a love for God? 
do you draw near to God? Listen, make no mistake. This, this book, this book is about, it's about solving problems. This book's not blind to the condition of humanity and the needs that are there. And it addresses all kinds of needs, right? We're, we're in the need-addressing, problem-solving business, right? From poverty to potheads. Right? From disease that riddles people's bodies and creates the most horrible stories that you and I can imagine. To divorce that wrecks homes and leaves people brokenhearted. From sex trafficking all over this world to suicide. From depression that grips people and shuts their lives down to, to the disenfranchised who don't feel like they can fit in with anybody, anywhere. From just the, the mere condition of lovelessness and living in a loveless condition to loneliness, people who are seriously lonely in life. Right, those, are, those are real problems. But they are not the problem. They are the symptoms of the problem. And there is a difference between, you know, all the medical folks here know, there's a difference between treating symptoms and creating cures. Right? Just because you can dump somebody in an ice bath and bring their temperature down, that doesn't mean you have cured them. It means the second you take them out of the ice bath, the problem is going to destroy their lives anyway. So the church is called to have as its primary message the treating of symptoms. Although we want to make a difference in every one of those categories. But we make a difference by curing the problem. Here's the problem. Colossians chapter 1. I'll put this in your outline. I don't think you have to look this up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is in the person of Jesus Christ God has come in that person, fully in that person. That's a significant factor. Of the billions of people that have lived upon planet Earth, none of them were God except this one. You might want to pay careful attention to him, right? He's unique amongst all of humanity. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on Earth or in Heaven, making peace... By the blood of his cross. And you, who once, right, former condition, you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled. All right, and that sentence right there gives, this whole passage is great, but that one sentence gives away the problem. Once you were this, now you are that. Once... You were alienated and hostile in mind. That was your condition. That was your disease. And the symptoms were the evil deeds that you were doing. Why were you doing the evil deeds? Well, because you were alienated from God. And how does somebody live when they're alienated from God? Well, they live hostile toward God, first of all. Because I don't want anybody ruling over me. I don't want anybody's ideas but my ideas running the show. Even if I'm a sweet, nice idea person, I just want them to be my ideas. They got to clear me first. I'm not into this obedience to another being idea. Well, that's hostility toward God. And, and you're going to take your ideas into a human form and you're going to run with them. And at some point, they're going to create evil. 
So you want to know why all the evil deeds exist out here? Why all these conditions? Why all these symptoms? Well, because man is alienated from God. Man lives far from God. The message of the church is the message of reconciliation to God. And in reconciliation to God, the symptoms get cured. Don't try to cure the symptoms without reconciling people to God. Remember this passage, I don't think I put it in your outline, but Galatians 5 talks about this comparison between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Two different life sources create an external reality, an experiential component. There's the deeds of the flesh, and then there's the fruit of the spirit. So the flesh generates one kind of life, and the spirit generates another. Remember this list here? Here's the deeds of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sensuality. Ladies and gentlemen, sensuality. Can I talk to every man here just for a second? You live in the most sensually oriented part of the universe of all time. There's going to be a breakfast here in a couple of weeks. It's for men. It's for men to help them deal with the ravages of sensuality that are showing up in your lives. If you've got, got a problem in some of these areas, if you've got a problem with, with pornography or you're, you're overeating or you've got some laziness-driven components of your life and, and you're not here in two weeks... You're kidding me, right? Because this kind of stuff devastates lives. This, this sensuality out of control in our lives is devastating to you and to your family and to everybody who's got to relate to you. And, and if you don't do anything about it, nothing will be done about it. This is where habits get formed. We live in the habits of our lives and we've built bad habits and, and we're trying to help with that. So if you've got some bad habits going on in your life, you need to be here uh, for breakfast in a couple of weeks to help see that get different in your life. Right? Idolatry, this is deeds of the flesh. Idolatry, sorcery. Right? Idolatry is kind of a, a nice sinful word, by the way. This is where you can be a sweet, quilting old lady and still have idolatry issues. Well, you can. Enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger. Why do people abuse? Why do people go to war? Why do people hurt one another? Well, deeds of the flesh. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, I warn you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is a different life. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a different life. And, and the people in the world who, don't, who can form churches who don't need God to be a part of them anymore want that life. What the world needs now is love, love, love. Right? And there's a song like that somewhere. Joy, peace. Right? The world needs peace. Right? These are things the world wants these things. Where does it come from? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Where does that come from? From people who have been reconciled to God who have the Spirit in them. Well, can we just teach them to do it without bringing God into the equation? No. 
No. All I can teach you to do is to shift your idolatry into a new category and try and do it in human flesh. Do it in the power of whatever motivates you. There's some people who are severely denying themselves for the good of somebody else. There's some people doing that in the world. But that doesn't mean that they're living for the glory of God. They may be living for the glory of their organization or living for the glory of a cause or they love a cool bumper sticker. That's what God's, God's not called us to that. God's called us for people to be reconciled to himself. And then when you meet God, the fruit of the spirit in your life becomes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Your life changes as a result of the nearness of God to you. And then the only one who can take glory for that is the God who created us. This is the mission that we're on, right? I think that passage there... Second Corinthians will take you a little farther into that. Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. We are imploring people, that passage says, be reconciled to God. All right now, that's, that's the message we have for the world. It is also the need that is in our lives as Christians. This is why the nearness of God is a concept Christians need to carefully explore. Because on paper, if you will, we've been reconciled to God. That doesn't mean I'm experiencing that. It doesn't mean that the fruit of the Spirit is being manifest and I'm experiencing that if I am reconciled to God but live far from Him. You could could be a Christian here. This is a strange thing and it's a sobering thing. It's a questionable thing. Be a Christian here who you are reconciled to God but you live far from God and therefore a snapshot of your life looks more like the world than it does like God. That's just a fact. Your outline there, I said this fact. Modern man seeks his remedy away from God. That's why Tony, or Campolo there is on campus. It is a great temptation for Christians to do the same because we live in this world and this world rubs off on us. So you start living life and you're experiencing some things and you're getting undone, freaked out, turned upside down. The circumstances of your life are are making you cry uncle. It's very tempting to seek a remedy that comes far from away from God. I I just, I just need to change something in my life. I need to fix, I need to deal with these symptoms, right? We can be tempted to think our greatest need is related to our poverty, our disease, or our divorce, or whatever it is that characterizes our lives, right? That's our greatest need. My greatest, most pressing need right now, Keith, is I gotta get to the end of the month, it's my finances. My greatest, most pressing need in my life is the condition of my marriage, I think we're headed for divorce. The greatest, most pressing need of my life is I've been diagnosed with X, Y, or Z, and I'm living in this condition. That's the greatest need of my life. And if you can cure those things, you'll fix me. That's the second commandment without the first one. That's the same problem. It's Christians who have pushed the nearness of God into a secondary issue and have made these other things the primary issue. This is what matters the most to me. Keith, preach on these areas and how to fix them so that I can walk out feeling better. Well, listen, you you just might want an ice bath for the symptoms of life rather than the cure. Because the cure for the Christian is still the same cure as anybody needed. The nearness of God in our lives. 
experiencing it and knowing it. Now, if you venture into this book of Hebrews with me, I think I put most of the passages there, so you probably won't have to turn to too much. The book of Hebrews, written in the first century, is to suffering Jewish Christians. First century, things are, things are looking really hard, very discouraging, hard time. They are having to endure much. The word endurance is going to be used a lot in this book. So this is trying to help people who are enduring. All right, so let me just see if we can get into that category with these guys. How many guys are here this morning? You don't need to raise your hands, but in your heart acknowledge at least this. That you are in a season of enduring something. Right? There, there are things in our lives that don't qualify to be called enduring. They, they, they fall into the category of enjoying. Right? Things that are pleasant, things that are going our way, things that are reinforcing good stuff. We don't endure those. Anybody enduring that kind of stuff? Right? You enjoy those things. But you endure stuff that is seemingly opposed to you, making things difficult, breaking down, hostile, opposing, suffering. Those things we endure. Right? So, all right, so all right, does that clear it up? How many guys are enduring this one right now? Yeah? Look, I'm enduring this season or setting or physical condition, etc. And my question is, what, what are you doing to fix that? What are you setting your hope in to fix this sense of enduring what you're going through right now? How does that get fixed? Well, interesting to enter into the life of the Hebrews, the folks in the book of Hebrews, and see what kind of advice they're about to get in enduring. Right, so let's just rapidly go through and get some thoughts from the book of Hebrews. Raymond Brown in his commentary says, This magnificent letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of first century Christians who were in danger of giving up. Right, at some point, if you're really enduring, at some point you pass a mile marker that begins to have this question mark on it. Want to give up? Ready to give up? Had enough? I mean, just kind of as you travel along, those are the signs along the way. The times were hard for Jewish Christians especially. Many of them had been exposed to fierce persecution. They had been physically assaulted. Their homes had been plundered. Some had been cast into prison on account of their faith. Others had been ridiculed in public because of their resolute trust in Jesus I don't develop this fully, but just think for a second. Your community, your life, your culture has been the Jewish setting of life in a Gentile world. So you found shelter amongst the Jewish people from the Gentiles who are hostile to you. Roman Empire is imposing itself on you and abusing you. And then you put your faith in Jesus Christ in that community and they boot you out. I mean, just think through the realities of this. Where, where are you going to get your job? Who's going to employ you? How are you going to pay your bills? How's your family going to have its needs met? They don't even worry about whether or not you'll be able to send them to college. Just figure out how you're going to feed them. And you're enduring and enduring in enduring a difficult, and not just stealing your stuff, because the Romans are coming in and taking, taking things, etc. 
but you can't find support amongst the culture that you live in. You are a strange little oddity now, this Christian, Jewish Christian in the first century. Into these conditions, we get a heavy-duty installation of some new vocabulary words. You guys remember when you were kids and there was a new story that you had to read like in fourth grade, in third grade, and the story began with vocabulary words? When you read this story, you're going to get introduced to these words. Well, if you read the book of Hebrews, you're going to get introduced to some words. You're going to get introduced to drawing near. Five times, more than any other book in the New Testament, five times drawing near is going to be referenced in this one book. Endure or endurance is going to be mentioned eight times in this book. And the word confidence is going to be mentioned four times in this book. So I just want us to study these three vocabulary words because they are all related and they're all important. Now, we've already spent a lot of time already in drawing near. So I'm not going to spend any time further developing that. We've talked about that quite a bit over the last several weeks. But, but just keep in mind, again... If alienation is the problem, then reconciliation and drawing near is the cure. So if your life begins to feel with all these symptoms that you've got a lot of deeds of the flesh going on, you've got sensuality issues and you've got idolatry issues, you've got anger and jealousy issues, that stuff accompanies alienation. So if your life is producing that and you say, but yes, but I'm a Christian, but you're a Christian staring at God through binoculars. That's why this stuff is flourishing so much. God is far uh, from you. Let's look at this word endurance. This call to endure. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 36. For you have need of endurance. Imagine you're relating to these people. They're telling you stories. They've lost homes. They've been beaten. There's bruises and scars physically on their body. They're having financial struggles. They can't find employment. They, they don't know how the needs are going to get met that are in their lives. And your advice to them is what? You have need of relief. That's what I'd be thinking, right? I'd want to fix their problem. I mean, that's just in me. I mean, I, I don't know if you're like this. I'm like this, and it makes, it, 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 it makes life very weighty for me because every time I get around a problem, something in me feels like I'm supposed to fix it. Are you one of those people? I'm a fix-it person. So if anybody mentions anything, you know, I'm not trying to make you allergic to being around me at this point, but, you know, if you say something about a need, there's something in me that goes, uh, okay, what, what do I need to do to fix that? <laughs> well, you know what? There's some things that, can't be fixed, and there's some things that God chooses not to fix, and they're all over our lives. There's no advice here, hey guys, this is really, this is really tough on you. You know, you know what you need? You, need to, you just need to change a venue, doggone it. Just need some things around you need to change. And so, you know, I, I do that, or I'm thinking practically, I could do this instead of that, I could adjust this, schedule-wise, I could change that, blah, blah, blah. And that's not wrong for us to do that, but it's interesting that to these people who are in the throes of difficulty and challenge, the advice is, here's what you need, guys. You have need of endurance. That doesn't doesn't sound attractive to me because that sounds like more of this. (laughs) That sounds like buckle up, you're going to be here for a while. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm loving that idea. John Piper says, the book of Hebrews was written to a church 
that was getting old and was settling into the world and losing its wartime mentality and starting to drift through life without focus, without vigilance, and without energy. Their hands were growing weak. Their knees were feeble. It was just easier to meander in the crowd of life than to run the marathon. That's a good word, the marathon. The Christian life is a marathon. How many of you guys have ever run a, was it a 26 mile? 26 mile marathon. Let me just see. How many? 26.2. Yeah, and that means something to you once you've gotten to 26, I can imagine. <laughs> for me, who never plans on doing that's meaningless, but for the rest of you, that's meaningful, I know. All right, so one of y'all? One, two, three, four, five, six. All right, I think there's a counseling meeting afterwards for. Uh, just for you guys, just to help you through some issues in life. <laughs> uh, you participate differently in a marathon than you do in a sprint from, this is the sprint that I do. It, it happens to be only in rainy conditions at the Walmart from the car to the door. So that's my track and field event for the week right there. Uh, you kind of even don't have to train for that, right? You know, short sprint, casual, kind of get a little wet, no big deal. But doing a marathon... And if the Christian life is a marathon, then you and I might need some preparation for that, right? We might need to look at it a little more intentionally. Maybe need to be in a little better health, a better focus on what it is that we're engaging. And that's a good word for us to think of. Because you're going to enter something that at some point the endurance light is going to come on in the dashboard. And you're going to be in endurance mode. This is no longer new. It's not exciting. It's very few new vocabulary words. It's becoming very familiar, and it's a long, lengthy thing in a fallen world part of the Christian life. And so endurance is going to be an issue. When endurance becomes an issue, you, you get on slippery ground. Endurance has a way of messing with us and making us vulnerable to what Hebrews talks about, the entanglements of sin. Let us lay aside. Every sin that so easily entangles. Can I just tell you, when you begin to have to endure things, it gets a little easier to get entangled. I, I just need to know that, right? And if you read through, like, here's a rapid reading of some of the side effects of enduring that can pop up in your life. You hear it in what's being said in this book, right? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Be aware that when endurance becomes the feature element in your life, you are more vulnerable. You're always vulnerable to that. You are more vulnerable to your heart becoming an evil, unbelieving heart and a heart that accuses God, a heart that sees life through a different lens, a heart that makes you vulnerable to just beginning to fade from the nearness of God. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter. All right, so endurance produces a sense of laziness, a, a sense of why should I bother? Why get up and move? No, 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 no. Strive to enter, the Hebrews writer says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So, so not only strive to enter, but be obedient to God. In our culture today, that word is falling into non-use for Christians. Obedience to God is a non-use concept. Everything's optional for us. 
And when you begin to endure, it becomes tempting to just be disobedient. Hebrews 5. It's hard to explain, he says, since you have become dull of hearing. So when we're enduring life, there's a danger for us to slip into dullness of hearing. We don't hear God. We're not pierced by his voice anymore. Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. When you enter into a season of enduring, and right, many of us just volunteered and said, hey, that's me. A potential side effect of that endurance is you don't want to be around people. You don't want to be around Christians. You don't want to make that meeting. You don't want to gather for fellowship. You don't want to walk in accountability. You don't want to let people in and you don't want to get involved in their situation. So that's why the writer has to turn around and say, hey, those of you who are in the throes of enduring, don't don't forget to get together. You need to be with one another. That's important. Hebrews 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace. Right? So enduring times become conflict times. I'm not happy. Therefore, I'm not happy with a lot of things. <laughs> right? You can be enduring a situation and just become rather irritable and crotchety. How many of you guys recognize that? That's why this passage has got to come in behind that and say, hey, when you, when you start to endure things, make sure you're striving for peace, for holiness. See to that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness pops in there. No sexual immorality begins to show up. Look at the stuff that comes in when people find themselves in an unfavorable, unenjoyable setting called endurance. You wonder, wow, why is there just more temptation for sexual immorality? Why am I just so, I'm so angry. You know what? Everybody who's ever done anything wrong to me is in my mind right now. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm in the throes of, I'm just bitter about, you know. You get people who are enduring and you'll have them tell their story. And it's interesting how far back they reach with their story. It's not just that, you know, I got a few people irritating me right now. All, all of a sudden there's a resume of miserable people in their life. And they're just telling you all about it. And by the time you're done, you're convinced, well, you, have, you are a victim of a lot of bad stuff. Right? This is why the Bible jumps in and says, hey, be careful that bitterness doesn't spring up in your heart. And you just don't get distant from God. You stop gathering. You're not near to God. Next thing you know, sexual immorality is a problem for you. Right? Where did the stuff come from? Well, you entered into a time of enduring. And it became very difficult. Hebrews 12, 1. God calls witnesses to help encourage them. Therefore, since we have, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life given as a race is a marathon. It's a marathon race. It's called to be run with endurance. Endurance is unavoidable. You and I are going to have that light come on. Probably already have it on. And we are having to endure as we run this race. 
Uh, here's, here's an interesting challenge and <clears throat> just a little bit of facts. In this broken world, and specifically your broken life, because you've got your own version of it, you don't get to escape. You get to endure. How many of you know there's a big difference between how you approach things if escape is an option for you? Everybody remembers the Cortez burning his boats illustration, right? Came to America, knew that when he got here, it'd be hard. So they all sailed over on ships when Cortez got to Mexico. He wanted to make sure he succeeded. So he cut off the escape hatch. He burned the boats. Guess what? We're going to make this work, guys. Because <laughs> we're not going anywhere. There's nowhere for us to go. We're, we're going to make this work. See, if you open the door to escapism, it is so attractive in the season of endurance. When you're trying to endure things, getting out of it, however you get out, escaping it through whatever means becomes very, very attractive. Now, that's the reality of our culture. Our culture is selling you escapism on a daily basis. It majors in escaping. It specializes in escaping. It can package it. It can give it to you, right? If you drew up, grew up and you had problems with drugs and alcohol, drugs and alcohol is just an escape. I just want to escape from my life. I want to escape from how it feels. I want to escape from the mundane. I just need a thrill. I'm going to just set aside what life really feels like. I don't want to endure this plain Jane life, or I don't want to endure this difficult life. I'm going to escape through drugs or alcohol. I'm going to escape through various distractions and devices. Those little things in our pockets, they are enormous distractions. Do you want to know why people can't help but touch them so often? Because life outside of that little device is, it's just life. Those boring people you live with. I mean, God knows you people are just killing me. I hope somebody's doing something worth watching. I'm sorry, I'm not listening to you. I've dismissed you a long time ago. You got nothing to say. I've known you for too long. Let me try somebody I don't know here. Oh my gosh, look at that cat. You know. I mean, what is that? It's, it's just escape. Let me just escape from reality into cyber world. Divorce. You can escape from a marriage through divorce. You can escape from things by never committing to those things. It was interesting. I was talking to the guys on campus at Tulane the other night. My, my subject of discussion was dating. And it was interesting to look at the modern dating world that these guys are having to live in and traffic their way through. And to look at the difference between, you know, in the Bible, people got married when they were teenagers. Uh, In the, my lifetime, people got married in their early 20s when I was, in the 1960s when I was born. Today, the latest marriage dates ever. Men get married almost at 30. Women get married at 27. The latest dates, right, so... Let's just push that as far away from us as possible. Let's just stay freelance, kind of floating through life. Let's leave our options open. Right? What, you know, I can escape some things by just not being committed to some things. And that is very attractive, and your culture is majoring in it today. 
I don't say this to be insulting to you. I just want you to test, you know, the traces of lead that are in your veins. You are probably as least committed to things as you've ever been in your life. Used to be that people showed up for church. They never missed. They missed for such reasons now that you'd be embarrassed to miss about a few years ago. I don't read my Bible for some of the saddest excuses of reasons you've ever heard. Just not committed. I'm just not committed to things. Part of this extracurricular thing, but I'm not really there. You know, I'm not always involved. And we're just all over the place. Lack of commitment. That's an escape element. Nobody wants to endure anything difficult. Nobody wants to have their will crossed and be challenged. And I got to put up with, and that's not a convenient time for me. Does your church meet at that time? Well, that's not going to work for me. Nobody wants that. So I just won't be committed at all. I'll escape from having to endure. But that's not what God's called you to live. All right, you have this in mind as you gaze into your device. Escapism, here's a definition for escapism. The avoidance of reality by absorption of the mind in entertainment or in an imaginative situation, activity, etc. Most of those people inside your, trapped inside your little device, they're imaginary. They'll never be in your world. They live on the other side of the globe. They live in Hollywood. You'll never meet them. They will never talk to you. Right? I had friends like that when I was little. They were called imaginary friends. Right? And now they're trapped inside your device. It's escapism. All right, question. Uh, if, if you're going to endure, you will need to draw near to God. That's what Hebrews is trying to get these people to do. They are in endurance mode and their only hope is drawing near. That's why they get told five times, draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near. Because if you're going to make it through this, if you're going to endure, you're going to need to draw near. If you're going to escape, you won't need to. Does that make sense? Right? I look at my situation. It's hard. It's pressing. It's discouraging. If I'm going to stay in it, God, you're going to have to be in this with me. And you're going to have to be in it in in an effective, powerful way. I'm going to need to hear your voice. I'm going to need reinforcements. My faith is going to need to be strengthened on a regular basis. You and I are going to have to have a living exchange going on in my life if I'm going to stay in this. But if I'm going to jettison and get out of it and make it instantly easier somewhere else, I don't need God for that. And so escapism, it teaches us to create a a life where we don't need God. And that's just tempting and attractive. All right, so question for you. Do you find yourself living in sort of endurance mode or escape mode? Right? When life comes to you, you start dealing with life. Do you have something from God that you are on a mission? God has put you on a mission. Everywhere your foot travels, there's a mission attached to it. The people in your life, the settings in your life, the teams, the church, whoever it is that God's put you in, you're on a mission. And when it gets difficult and then you have to begin to endure, are you on a mission in that moment? So therefore, do you get near to God? To get whatever you've got to get to stay on mission? Or are you living in escape mode that when one thing after another gets hard, I go into creative escape patterns? 
What can I do to escape this? What can I do to get distracted from this enduring moment? What can I do to do it differently? Listen, if you live in an escape mode, then more than likely you are suffering big time with how far God is from you. Because whenever you create a life that needs God, you escape it. So there's a reason why Hebrews got all these words featured together. An enduring life needs the nearness of God in it. And this other word, confidence, let me just go off into that one just for a second. We're called to endure with confidence, right? So these guys were were sucking lemons and life was hard, but the writer of the Hebrews is not trying to empower them to say, woe is me, woe is me. Oh, I can tell you're enduring. Well, how? Because that little gray cloud that follows you around everywhere. Here comes, oh, look, here comes the endurance guy. Ah. Now my wife is going to use that against me, I can tell. Look, here comes the, hey kids, look, the gray cloud guy's home. (laughs) Uh, All right, so nearness to God is supposed to produce a sense of confidence in the midst of endurance. It's an interesting side effect, isn't it? Well, where does this confidence come from? Now, if you listen to Hebrews over and over and over again, this is where Hebrews tries to land. It lands in the category of confidence. Where do we get our confidence from? Raymond Brown says, but how does one encourage such people in critical and adverse times? The author knows they must be urged to hold fast, to strive to enter, to go on to maturity, to seize the hope set before them, and so on. Yet he can only make such eloquent and necessary pastoral exhortations because... He's already done a far more basic thing. First, as a matter of the utmost importance, he has turned their eyes not to themselves, hoping for sufficient inward strength, nor to their agonizing troubles, nor to their persecuting contemporaries, but to Christ. No believer can cope with adversity unless Christ fills his horizons, sharpens his priorities, and dominates his experience. That's so true, isn't it? And the writer of the Hebrews knows that. So in trying to help people in endurance, he uses a technique here all throughout the book, over and over and over again. Right? I think I put in your outline there. All these motivational reasonings are set in this formula. There's a basis, and then there's the word therefore or since, right? In the book of Hebrews, therefore is used 21 times. That means something was presented that is now being summed up into why we do what we do. 21 times therefore is used. The word since, right? This is true. Well, since that's true, that's how that's being used 25 times. And then lastly, confident enduring. There's a basis which turns into confident enduring. I look in Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since, we get a double dose right there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? So the writer's been trying to convince them and motivate them. Let me give you reasons why you can endure, why you can do this. Let us also lay aside every weight And sin, which clings so closely, right? When you run through endurance, you get some stuff stuck to you. 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, right? Guys, this has been done. This enduring thing, it's been done. That one man I told you about, who's unique from all men, he's done it. Let's, let's look to him. You need to endure right now? Let's look to the one who's done it. And he's been there. He's done that. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Right? That's, that's endurance language, right? Weariness and faint-hearted, that comes with enduring. When you begin to endure, you will begin to grow in the categories of weariness and faint-heartedness. And what's the remedy here? How does one endure with confidence? By looking to Jesus. Now, we talked last week about meditating. Listen, listen, you can't afford, you want to live the Christian life, you can't afford to have Jesus be a stranger to you. The knowledge of God is everything to you, everything to you. What you know about him, not not just what you know about facts and archaeological discovered information about the Bible, and, and that's all fine as long as it leads you to a knowledge of him. Some of us have, you know, we've been around Christianity. We, we've gotten around, you know, preachers who make noise in certain categories. And, man, we can be all up in arms about a cause. And we love that doctrine right there. And I can argue with anybody about that, whether or not that's still true or not. And we haven't been near to God in forever. That's a shame. Because the only thing that's going to lead me through this enduring is considering him. Looking to him. Knowing him intimately at a greater level than I know him now. And if there's any wear and tear of endurance on my life right now, it's screaming at me, Keith. You have yet need of knowing him. And so if you're feeling like me, I'm, feel, I'm, I'm weariness. Yeah, that, that, that's me. Faint hearted. Yeah. Well, then I have need. I've been saved for 25 years. I've been saved for 40 years. Uh, and you still have need of considering him further than you have and knowing him more deeply. And it may be that some of what you've known of God, you knew so long ago that it's a faint echo in your life. It's not fresh. It's not near. It's not even affecting you the way it should be. But just in this passage, it is great meditation stuff, right? He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You have not been dealt a bad aftermarket product. And if you shop online, you know what I'm talking about. If you go to fix your car and you buy an aftermarket product and you buy something cheap, wow, look how cheap you can get it from them. (laughs) Yeah, because it's plastic instead of metal and it's not going to last. All right, you didn't get that kind of faith. The author, the originator, the one who created faith and gave it to you and put it in you is Jesus Christ himself, the perfect God who does nothing but perfect things. 
and he has placed in you faith to look to him. It's not defective faith. It's not bad faith. It's not broken faith. Maybe neglected faith. But I've got reason in here to ponder and have high hopes. I'm putting my faith in the one who accomplished endurance. Whatever it is that I'm enduring, the Son of Man came to be a man so that he could endure the very things that I have to endure. To take upon himself my sins and to go to the cross with them. Oh, he knows quite well my life. He has taken my life with him into his life. And he has endured. So whatever endurance was needed for this person's life is found in that person's life. He endured on my behalf. I can reach into his reality life and have in my life his endurance. But I I need to get in touch with that. I need to be around that. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not not still on the ground. He's not lost somewhere. He didn't get sidetracked. He failed to cross the finish line. He's still out on the course. He ran the race. He finished the race. He accomplished his purpose. He's seated at the right hand of God, completely in victory, reigning over all of creation, me included. That's all in this verse right here. That just takes, takes some time. Sit with God. Meditate. Let that come out. Consider him. One more passage. Hebrews 10. Verse 19 starts with one of our therefores. Therefore, brothers, since... Right, trying to convince us. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Right There's the basis. There's the confidence. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful, right? Another since therefore statement. Let us hold fast. Why? Because the basis of our holding fast is he's faithful. Do I know? Have I been around? Are these arguments floating in me? This, this writer in Hebrews is sitting with an audience, much like us, wrestling with endurance. I don't think I can make it. I want to quit. And he pulls up arguments that are available to every one of us. They're preserved in Scripture, but they're witnessed by the Spirit. And they have to do with knowing Christ. Do I know these things about him? I can hold fast. I cannot press the escape button. I can hold fast. In hope, without wavering. Well, Keith, why can you do that? Because you're just an exceptional person. Because you're just one of those more serious people. You're just, you're just more dedicated than the next guy. That, is that why you can? Hey, man, that works for you. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know my background. You don't know how many things I've got to overcome even to get to just normal. Well, that doesn't seem to be the point in this passage. Listen, this is, this is again being educated by our culture. Our culture's taught you so much about, so much distorted stuff about you. Distorted stuff. The, the culture doesn't even see humanity correctly. It can't because it lives in darkness. And so then it teaches you why you are the way you are. 
and convinces you why you are the way you are. And then you pick that up and you bring it into Christianity with you and you use it as a reason to break all the rules. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That means no gray cloud. That means hopefulness in me. It means a sense of confidence as I endure difficulty without wavering. Well, why? Because I'm just doggone disciplined. That's why. That's not in the verse. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. That one over there. Draw near to him. Stare at him. Get close. Be affected by him. Be informed by him. Because he who promised is faithful. You want to be confident? That I'm not off track. My life is not going to unravel. My future is not bad. Everything's not going to collapse on me. You want to be convinced of that? Get around Jesus Christ. Get closer to him. Stop trying to treat the symptoms. Get near to the God himself who's infectious when we get near to him. And who convinces us he's faithful. I've been near the one who's faithful. I'm not freaking out. That's the result of being near to him. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up, buddy. Here here was our title today. Enduring with confident hope. Enduring with confident hope. Fact, life is an endurance race. No matter how much you or I want it to be something different. As a wise, sagey woman once said to me, it is what it is. I won't tell you who that was, but it sounds like she should have been smoking dope when she said that. It is what it is, man. But it's true. I know it doesn't always feel like I'm going to like the idea that life is an endurance race, but it is what it is. Life is an endurance race. And we are called to run the race that's set before us. And it is an endurance race. The last thing in your outline there says, draw near to God so that you may see and experience the person and work of Christ so that you may have a confident hope while you endure. And it just won't happen without front row seats to the person of Jesus Christ. Let's stand up together. Let me do this with us for a second. So you're going to need to switch into what we call last week meditation mode, right? Remember we said last week, meditation's that interesting thing that God has given us. It's like an elevator. Sit in the circumstances of our life. We see them a certain way at ground floor, maybe in the basement, depending on how bad things are. And then we get on the elevator. We meditate on the truth of God and the elevator begins to take us not out of our circumstances. You stay at the same address when you're at the, in the elevator. But it takes you to a different perspective. And suddenly you're on the 100th floor and you, 
you see so much more than what you were seeing just at that first floor. So listen, you and I can't survive in this world with a first floor mentality. We've got to see more. And meditation helps us to do that. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider right now what it is that you are enduring right now. All right, get real with God. Think with him. You've probably brought it up with him recently anyway. What is it that's, that's wearing you out? What is it that you're beginning to feel? I, I don't know if I can keep going in this area. Why are you very tempted to take an escape route rather than to press on further in this? What we just read in Hebrews 10. How does this passage in Hebrews 10 help us? How does it help us to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering? How does it help us to do that? Because that's what it concludes with. Well, this is meditation territory, right? Meditation, you have to argue with your soul. You have to hire a Bible attorney and mount evidence against your soul that's been cross-examining your life left and right and convincing you of its perspective, you're going to have to fight back now. Right, so this is your moment to fight back. You ready? And this verse is supposed to help us. That's why it's given this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And this answers the argument in your soul that says, after all you've done, you can't get near God. With your resume, you, you can't get through God. With this yet again season of unfaithfulness and doubt and distance from God, you've been away from God for so long. How's that feel? You've neglected the God who loves. How's that feel? You can't get near God. All right, so who even takes a step toward God in that moment when we've drifted that far? But brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, well, why do we have confidence? Because of the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. Not the old way. Not the way where you thought by human effort and striving, I can get myself before God. And and my resume is so bad, I can't even go there, Keith. There's just no way. You don't understand. No, I do understand. I understand this passage. And you need to understand this passage. You need to be convinced that there's a way that's been made wide open for the worst person in this room. And if you know yourself, then you are the worst person in this room, right? I have no idea how corrupt your thoughts are, but I know mine. So I can be pretty sure I think I'm the worst person in the room. But I have confidence to come near to God. I have no reason for delay for another second. And, and then I have this great priest over the house of God. And what do we learn about that priest in the book of Hebrews? This priest ever lives to make intercession for us. That's the priest. This priest who has complete access to God and complete access to us. 
lives to put his hands on our lives and draw us near to God. He is the one who came and put on flesh, who died as the sacrifice to break down barriers and dividing walls so that you and I could come near to him. That great high priest is in this passage providing for us a reason why we can endure And let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So no matter what we've been through, no matter what our background, no matter how discouraging, how much we fumbled, how bad it's become, and there's repercussions for that, I'm sure. But this passage says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. The Bible wants you to be fully assured. You can come near to God. Because it's, It's never been about your resume, ever. It's always been about what was done on your behalf. Now, near to God, what might God say to you? What might he reveal to you about what you're enduring right now? Now Let's let's just close your eyes and just get with God for a moment. Just begin to listen for him. Lord, hearing you begins with being near to you. Hearing your voice, giving you access to the ears of our souls so that you might say whatever you need to say. Lord, it it begins by being near to you and being available to you. Lord, there are some here who are enduring in very different categories, but Lord, nonetheless, enduring in this season. From enduring old age to enduring changes in young age, insecurities of teen years and young adulthood, questionable futures, uncertainty about self, or midlife years, the different dose of challenges, older years, single years and married years, enduring seasons of raising little babies to enduring an empty nest. But in all these places, God, we desperately need to hear you speak to us. We need your voice. Or some of us just need to hear you say, I love you and you're not alone. I'm with you. I promised you I'd never leave you. I'd never forsake you. some of us need to hear you disclosing to us what you're up to. What are you doing, Lord? Why is this so challenging? Why am I so discouraged by it? Lord, some of us need to hear you say you are disciplining us. You're preparing us for days ahead. You are preparing us to run the marathon. You are deepening faith 
You are loosening the grip of shallow things in our lives. And though it's painful, Lord, it's just good to hear you explain that to us. It's just good for you to tell me that's what's going on. God, I, I can endure if I know that you're in control of this. I can endure if I know that there's a good outcome that you are working in my life. Some of us need to hear you talk about heaven and eternity and a future home with you and mansions that you have gone to prepare for us and begin to convince us these are temporary places. My body is a temporary dwelling, but I have a permanent one. I don't fear the loss of this one. For I know that, Lord, you have spoken to me again about that place. You have drawn near to me. You've made known to me the purpose that lasts forever and that I get a glorified body. I get one that's not broken down like this one. Lord, it's just good to be near you. It's good to hear your voice. So, Lord, I pray that what would come from study of drawing near to you would simply be the regular and experiential practice in our lives of drawing near to you, hearing your voice speak to us, of receiving all that comes when you are accessing our souls and you are speaking to our souls. So, Father, as we close this time, we turn our attention to you in song. Lord, teach us to get accustomed to your nearness. Teach us to pursue your nearness and have an appetite for your nearness. But Lord, we are all called to run a race that's a long one. A lot of opportunities for enduring. And Lord, we don't want to escape. We want to endure. So, Lord, help us by drawing near to us.